You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. Good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of the Bose Nose Show, and I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, and you know, I didn't have a show last week because I was traveling. I took a, 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 a week to travel out to Casper, Wyoming, and back for my niece's wedding, um, Got you know, took the COVID capsule, better known as our Airstream. Uh, out there and back and uh, had a really nice time. Uh, it was different because we left the dogs home. For the first time, we actually camped in the camper without dogs. And you know something? That's a lot bigger camper than we thought it was. Something about having three full-size standard poodles in there makes the camper a lot smaller. Um, but, you know, it was kind of interesting to get out of the state, have to pump my own gas, you know, things like that. And, and, and see some different parts of the country. Um, hadn't been to Casper before. I've been to, you know, along I-80 and, and I-90 in Wyoming multiple times. Um, but uh, first time in Casper uh, and actually took a little bit of an alternate route back and got to see some, you know, go through Logan, Utah, and a few other places. Got to see Bear Lake. Um, so it was a fun trip. But so much is happening here. And, you know, I'm back and all sorts of things have happened. In fact, as I was on the road yesterday, people were casting ballots in a recall election. And we'll talk about that much more. But first, I want to remind folks, I always like to talk about what you want to talk about more than what I've got scheduled to be talked about. So, you know, anytime you want to call and bring up a topic of your own or have a question for me, or if you want to talk about what I'm talking about, 646-721-9887. Don't forget to press 1 because that raises your little hand on our, our board and lets us know you want to actually talk or, you know, have a question and come on air. Because we do get people that dial in to listen on their cell phones because they can't be around a computer. You know, because we do, you know, we're broadcast under, you know, multiple formats from iTunes to you know, the blog talk radio format to we, we stream this Facebook live, um, you know, you name it, you can find us, uh, you know, for Caribbean internet news talk radio and the Bose nose show. But again, if you want to get on the show and talk to a local elected official about, you know, current events or some question you have about government or something that's going on in your area or one of the topics I've thrown up on the board there, 646-721-9887. Just press one so Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, knows that you want to get in on the, on the show live. So speaking of recalls, you know, I've always looked at recalls as something that should only be done in, in really egregious cases. You know, if you just don't like somebody's policy, you usually run somebody against them and try and beat them that way. And recalls generally are not successful. I mean, one only has to look at, you know, um, Wisconsin, and they kept trying to recall Governor Scott up there. Um, uh, you know, he, he, Scott survived multiple attempts, two big attempts to recall him. They generally don't work unless the politician being recalled has been either charged with a crime, caught in some egregious scandal, or, you know, something of a, such a huge, serious nature 
that people want to remove that person prior to end of term. I mean, and generally recalls become a badge of honor to the person that was attempted to recall and then was unsuccessful in doing that recall. And they'll brag about how, you know, yeah, they put, a, you know, they so-and-so's put together a recall effort, managed to get it on the ballot, and I, I beat it, you know, by, by 20 points or something like that. You know, and, and, it, and it actually gives them credibility to beat the recall. So I've always advised people politically when they ask me, you know, we should recall this person. It's like, you're probably not going to be successful, and you're probably just going to give that person more credibility when, they're, when, they, when you're not successful. So think carefully about whether you've got an issue or a situation that, that warrants a true recall versus just being active and running and keeping them from another term if possible, although it's really hard to defeat incumbents. So flash forward to somebody got pretty upset about the idea of having LTD buses have their own lanes on River Road and taking away automobile lanes. And that person gathered a couple friends and they went out and collected signatures on petitions and got enough into the city of Eugene to require a recall election for city councilor from Ward 7, Claire Surrett. This is the kind of recall that normally is not successful. It was over the fact that they felt that she wasn't representing their views and, you know, and various other things. That, but the big issue was she supported the Moving Ahead project, and they didn't like the Moving Ahead project that would put MX taking a lane away on River Road from automobile traffic. And I don't know if anyone's ever been around Silver Avenue interchange at Beltline there uh, when schools going in or out for North Eugene High School or at rush hour, but that whole area gets pretty dang congested. Um, so people were upset. And you, I, but you, you kind of think this counselor's, you know, run unopposed basically. It hasn't really had any strong opposition. Is it enough to, to to be a recall-worthy conflict. Well, apparently it was. So people must be really mad because the, the recall, yes, is leading the nose by over 600 votes out of 3,000. That's 20 percentage points. That's a pretty big gap. Um, and, of course, they're still vote, counting votes because Oregon for some stupid reason, after watching New York State completely um, destroy their election system by going to postmark ballots, um, decided to go to postmark ballots also for, for being legal. And uh, I have a feeling that sooner or later they'll reverse that trend because it makes it impossible to get immediately clearly defined election results. And there's the whole issue of whether the postmark's legible, you know, was it blurred? Did things even get a postmark sometimes? Um, it, it, it's, it's a bad thing. Um, so I don't believe in postmark elections. You know, if you can't get your ballot in the mail early enough to assure it gets the elections or better come to a ballot box, which they're all over the county, easy to access, you know, I just don't understand, you know, it's not, and you don't have to do it at any particular time of day on a specific day. You get your ballot in the mail, you know, well ahead of the election. You got all that time to swing by a ballot box. It could be two o'clock in the morning to drop that ballot off. Um, postmarks, no, not, not for me. That all said, it looks like that was a successful recall, which really surprises me. Historically, in politics, recalls that are over a policy you know, situation don't succeed. Wisconsin, workers, you know, the, the workers' rights and right to work, you know, states and stuff like that, it was all about union control. 
and it was a policy conflict, and it wasn't successful, even though it was heavily funded and heavily staffed by union folks, they still failed to recall the governor because it was policy. And most people are loath to support recall over policy versus waiting to the next election to decide whether that person deserves re-election or not. But I guess people were angry over MX, which you kind of, this is a trend. And Robin pointed this out to me before the show. Look what happened in Springfield when they proposed all those roundabouts on Main Street. People went nuts contacting counselors and all that stuff. And you know what? They pulled it off the table. But there, at least, I will grant Springfield that they were extremely honest about what they were planning. They had actual maps out there that showed what they were proposing to do. It took a while before people realized what they were doing because, you know, with the first input sessions and everything else were during COVID, a lot of people missed them. But once the word got around that they were actually proposing all those roundabouts, people went nuts because I think people are finally getting what's going on with this neo-traditionalist, Agenda 21-driven, climate-focused, you know, land, you know, centralized land planning, whatever you want to call it, stuff that is trying to force people out of their individual automobiles and to become dependent on mass transit. Because that's really almost all of what some of these modern planners, transportation planners and urban planners that are coming out of college, are. that's what's being beat into them, is the age of the individual automobile is over in their minds. And we need to make it so that it's easy for buses to get around and for people to get to those bus lines by walking and riding a bike to the bus. So that you hear this term multimodal all the time. And to encourage people to ride buses, they don't mind creating situations that create congestion for the automobile people. Thus, we've got this next trend, and I I tried to warn people that moving ahead meant this. and, 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 of course, that Springfield at least was honest about roundabouts, even though it was put under the thing of Main Street safety improvements, it's still roundabouts that create problems in urban settings. Roundabouts work kind of well in a rural setting. Went through one on my trip, a couple of them on my trip. You know, one only has to go into Sisters to hit a rural roundabout. That works pretty well. (laughs) You know, Sisters, Oregon on Highway 20. Um, those work rather well because they don't have a lot of bike and pedestrian traffic around them. (laughs) You put them in an urban setting, one where a lot of people, where there's higher traffic volume, two, where there's, you mix in bikes and ped, where they're not really the best situation for bike pedestrian safety, I'll be honest. People are looking to the left for the people coming that way not for the pedestrian that's crossing from the right or the bicyclist that needs to get past. How you, you, and it's way out of travel path to go around those circles for a pedestrian versus straight across the crosswalk. Um, that's just all, you know, one of the things that kind of drove people going, oh, what, what, roundabouts? Are you kidding me? On Main Street? With that amount of truck traffic getting to, you know, all of the industrial you know, south of uh, 18th and 28th there on, on off of Springfield and all the industrial north side of Main Street on 42nd, you know, th- there's a lot of truck traffic. But it just, yeah, it didn't make sense at all. And people finally saw that. Um, then, in, in addition to that, people are finally starting to grasp what moving ahead meant. Let alone, I, I think people are completely unaware of what the city of Eugene did when they adopt, when they updated their transportation system plan, 
for what's called a TSP for the city of Eugene, they adopted a level of service of E as acceptable because it meant that they would have to do less street widening because widening streets bad. Can't have an, can't be adding in any lanes. In fact, I've heard, you know, Rob Zako, who is the big uh, push for a lot of this stuff, in his better Eugene Springfield Transportation or BEST organization that he's executive director of, I think, or some has some position with them, um, and puts out a newsletter. Um, he's even expressed that he doesn't like the fact that that Beltline would get extra lanes over the land or river, or that. Highway 126 West out to Benita might get extra lanes to make it safer so they can put a, a center line divider in it because you can't put a center line divider on a two-lane highway. It means you can't get emergency vehicles to an accident. You know, it, it's People are waking up and finally realizing what the colleges have taught these urban planners and transportation planners and what they're actually trying to implement individual ownership of automobiles and the freedom of travel that involves has been essential to the success of the United States and the American family. Think about the ability to, you know, drop your kids off, you know, at school directly if you want to, to, you know, if they need to stay for practice one day, you know, that you don't have to worry, you can go pick them up for whatever practice. You need to get them from school to uh, their music lessons with a, a teacher or something, you know, all the, the various things that, you know, that mom's taxi service, you know, how many times have you seen that on, on a bumper sticker? Um, let alone the ability to have, have the choice of where you work, not be dependent on whether the bus gets there or not and what time and, it, and the ability to be flexible about leaving work when you need to. Like, you know, junior gets sick at school and needs to be picked up, and you have to take a couple hours of personal leave from the office to run pick up junior. Well, if you're if you're totally dependent on mass transit, that doesn't work out so well. Particularly uh, if you're commuting in from Benita to Eugene, where the buses only run a couple times in the morning, a couple times in the evening, not during the middle of the day. So you know, it's just. They, they even showed in a study that providing a um, family that was struggling financially, a low-income family, a working automobile does more to lift them out of poverty than most any other program because that working automobile allows the ability to have freedom of choice of employment and flexibility in employment. And, and it's, just, it's such a powerful thing. Yet there's this determination, it seems, to try and push us out of that situation. Now they're starting to say, well, we're, we're going to let you have electric cars. Really? Flash to California. We're going to mandate no gasoline-powered cars by 2035 and certain percentages by in interim dates. Three days later, when the weather turns a little bit hot, they go, oh, oh, and by the way, nobody should be charging their cars between, you know, 5 p.m. and 10 p.m. when they get home in the evenings because that's peak electrical usage and the grid can't support charging cars at the same time. So you can't charge your cars then, which means you may not have enough charge the next day to travel to and from work. What? That's our future choice. And, you know, let alone the fact that some of these internet-enabled um, thermostats, you know, where everyone thought it was such a great thing, they could turn their heat up and down from their phone, you know, when they're at work or something, so that it would be warm when they got home. Uh, think twice about that. Certain customers, you know, have found out that they get locked out of their thermostat during these, quote, energy emergencies. You don't think those electric vehicles might be able to, you might be able to get locked out of them? Careful. <laughs> Big Brother is coming. 
I keep talking about, you know, George Orwell seemed like he was predicting the future rather than writing fiction when he wrote 1984. I mean, moving ahead is a perfect example of naming something that's really about moving backwards. You know, going back to prior to Henry Ford, and we'll put people in buses <laughs> to their private automobiles. Think about what happened to America post the Model A. And, and when the individual automobile became, you know, part of America's lifestyle and the ability to have that freedom of employment choosing your employer wherever you want, being able to leave employment and have the flexibility to drive to your employment, what it does for freedom of, of ability to have your kids have a full life and, and choose to be educated in the way they want to because you can drive them where you need to go. You know, so it, it's, there's just so much that comes with that. My ability to go in person to my niece's wedding and stop along the way and have, you know, have an adventure. You know, that, that's all part of America. I can't imagine how I would have done that in an electric vehicle, having to stop and charge, even at a fast charging station, going across there, let alone having an electric vehicle that can pull an Airstream. But apparently the voters are kind of upset about this kind of big government mandating what happens in the marketplace and also is trying to force us, force decisions upon us. Thus, the recall of Clara Surratt was successful. I am a political animal, so I'm going to take a minute to be political. Don Leslie is running for my seat on the county commission. I ran against her eight years ago and, and beat her just barely because I realized at the last minute they were doing a very under-the-radar try and win in the primary effort. And I found out that they were doing it and started ramped up our own and managed to, to prevent it. She has been a supporter of MX and moving ahead. She may start denying it soon based on this recall election. We'll see. But she is in that camp that thinks they know best. She's been on the side of there should be no new natural gas in any homes in Eugene Springfield. Government knows best. Big brother. 1984. So as you're thinking about you, know, you folks out there in Santa Clara that, and River Road and, and on up River Road to Junction City of the congestion that's going to come with those kind of people supporting those kind of transportation decisions. You might want to think about the difference between Dawn and Ryan. Ryan's not bought into this stuff. And we'll, you know, at, at take a skeptical view probably of things like moving ahead. Can't promise that. You know, Ryan's his own person. But he hasn't stated that he supports moving ahead. Dawn has in the past. And and concepts like it. Um, you know, she served on the city of Eugene's um, climate action committee or whatever they call themselves. Um, she's completely bought into this idea that, that Combustion, automobiles, bad. Natural gas, bad. You know, of the consumer, bad. Um, government step in and dictate good. So if, if you, if that's the direction you want to go, that's the person you should be voting for. But you folks that voted, you know, by more than a 20% margin to recall Clara Surrett over that particular issue, might want to look carefully about how Don Leslie has supported MX in the past and concepts like moving ahead and how she has supported the idea that government knows best and ought to be changing your behaviors instead of you telling government how they should behave. 
Government works for you. Government shouldn't be trying to change the public's behavior. It shouldn't be a tool for that. The free market of ideas is where that should happen. Somebody should put it out there how wonderful electrical vehicles are and defend the fact that they, you know, mining for the, bat, the materials to make the batteries and all the, the energy that goes into making the vehicles and then the uh, loss of efficiency of generating electricity. You know, there's a huge loss when you generate electricity. It just is a, a matter of physics of spinning those magnets around, you know, with the coils of wire and all that stuff. There is an efficiency loss between the shaft energy put in and the electricity going out. And it, it's built into the physics of that system. So whatever energy you're using to turn the shaft to that generator, you know, it's a loss. Same thing with charging batteries, by the way. There's a loss of energy in charging a battery. Isn't it? 100% of the electricity you use to charge batteries does not go into battery. Dissipates as heat energy and other stuff. And then when you discharge the battery, it's not 100% efficient either. So, you know, just electricity, yeah. And then you get things like needing peak power. Well, what usually supplies peaking power? Burning fossil fuels. <laughs> and just look what's happening in Germany right now. As they get caught coming into a winter, knowing that, they can't access the clean natural gas coming out of Russia so much. They're reopening coal plants. They're holding off on shutting down nuclear power plants. All of a sudden, all that stuff, good. <laughs> it, yeah, when you're worried about whether or not people are going to freeze in their homes, suddenly that stuff makes sense. When you're trying to generate peak power, that stuff comes into play. So with all those energy losses at the generation side, all the losses in the transmission through the, the wires, and then into charging that battery in the car, all of that rather than burning the gas right in the car at high efficiency. With all the pollution controls we have, you know, so where do you generate more um, You know, where do you generate more CO2? Charging that electric car battery in peak hour, which is when almost everybody plugs it in. That's why California had to put out that, that request for people not to charge their cars. That's People come home and the first thing they do is plug their car and so it'll have a full charge by the next morning. Because cars have, those electric vehicles have a range issue. And if people are kind of concerned about traveling around without having a full charge, because what if they get caught in a traffic jam? Somebody going to come out with a can of electricity for your car? Mm, not really. So people all, you know, it, and then you get into an issue of battery memory and stuff like that, because people are going to constantly try and keep those electric vehicles at full charge. They're not going to deep cycle them, so the you know batteries get memory in them. You know, it, it's eventually they go bad early. Not to mention the issues of fires and everything else that come with them. It's not the end game solution. We're not. It, the technology's not there yet. The grid's not ready for it. Um, and in fact, it actually creates a higher CO2 footprint and a higher environmental footprint. No one looks at the source of the materials for the batteries in those vehicles and all the various copper wire and everything else. No one looks at where those mines are in the Congo using child labor for some of the materials or the mines that are in um, some of South America for the lithium using water in areas that are desperately arid to do the processing. It, it's just, yeah, it, it's one of those things where people just don't look at, and people are waking up a little bit, I think, to this whole thing of government trying to steer our behavior. 
If you want to tell people they really need to stop driving their vehicles and convince them to, with good arguments, do so. But don't mandate it. Don't force changes in behavior. Sell it. Defend it against people that say, so what about the mining footprint and that and massive footprint of mining those rare earths that go into those batteries and electrical equipment? What about those inefficiencies of generating electricity during peak hour? What about the transmission losses over the transmission lines? And what about the loss while charging the battery? You know, because batteries are direct current, electricity is trans transferred by alternating current, so you have to have a transformer. Transformers heat up, they just, they, you know, that heat is loss. Efficiency. You don't get 100% out of a transformer. Yeah, and, you know, then, you know, Robin kind of prompted me that, you know, there's this little fire problem with some charging. In fact, to the point where some apartment buildings have banned electric vehicles from their parking garages if the garage is underneath the living units. Because we've had some spontaneous explosions of, and fires of electric vehicles, and then you can't just throw water on them because lithium, ah, water, bad. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's not a good thing. Um, so it's just, yeah. Um, yeah, anyone that's taken basic chemistry understands lithium water, not good in a, where there's open flame. <laughs> For those that don't know the, 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 the chemistry behind that, lithium, you know, as an ion, bonds with the, the you know, water's H2O, it bonds with the OH, and one of the H's is released, and hydrogen, you know, remember the Hindenburg? Kaboom! Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, throwing water on a on a on electric car fire where the batteries have become exposed, yeah, might be not such a great idea. You know, uh, yeah, kind of like you know, throwing gasoline on a fire. Ah, uh, <laughs> wouldn't want to do that either. Um, so that, yeah, there, there are special fires and firefighters that now have to recognize whether it's an electric vehicle or not. And if the fire's already started in the vehicle, sometimes the vehicle's not recognizable. You know, it's like, yeah, how do you figure that out? You know, so it, it's uh, yeah, a whole other issue going, going there about, you know, whether the battery technology is totally safe. You know, just remember, you know, how many airplanes have had to land early because somebody's vaping pen blew up in their pocket or something, you know, or in the overhead bin. They won't let you pack them in, in your in your check luggage anymore because everybody realizes they're not 100% reliably safe. They're not spontaneously combust. And a fire in a baggage compartment in, in, in a passenger jet, not a good thing. So, um, yeah. So people are waking up and they're angry. I don't want a lane taken away from River Road. It's already congested. It's already terrible. It's already got a lot of accidents. And then you're going to throw MX buses on there that are going to run empty most of the time and take away and squeeze us down? We don't want that. Claire Surrett, you supported that. Goodbye. By a wide margin. Much to my surprise. This is the first recall election I have seen work that was over a policy decision. Robin's dying to jump in here. <laughs> Turn your mic on, Robin. Because uh, you know how much I love the AMX. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But um, talk about the cost. I mean, just like, I don't know how much River Road was going to cost, but I do remember that the little strip between U of O to Springfield was $14 million. Yeah, millions of dollars in infrastructure costs to build an MX line. 
you know, there are other places in our transportation system that are in desperate need. The Willamette River crossing a Beltline for one of them, it causes a lot of out of distance travel. People try and avoid that by going into town and back out sometimes and going way out of, of the out of direction, as they call it. That's wasted gas, not to mention the amount of gas wasted in the backups. So we're going to spend millions on MX because there's federal money available for that versus, you know, maybe lobbying our federal government folks to maybe swap some of that money over to fix that damn Willamette River crossing that should never have been four lanes to start with. But, you know, there's that. There's also the operational cost. MX requires many more operators than normal bus service because they have the, the, the quote, draw for MX is to have a bus every six minutes. Well, that's a lot of drivers to be on because they have to, you know, it's not, you know, one bus every hour or one bus every 15, yeah, one bus every six minutes. So people supposedly don't have to wait at the thing. To pay for that, they cut the neighborhood bus service. Not to mention fare box collections are down for all mass transit across the U.S. It's a national trend. Why? COVID-19 started it. First, people didn't want to get on a bus with a bunch of other strangers, mask or no mask, required. You know, second, people started working remotely. Oh, there's a concept. And not many people are returning to work remotely. And once people got used to driving their own vehicles and realized how much freedom there is in that, people don't want to give up that freedom. So fare box and travel on mass transit is way down. The only reason... MX and LTE aren't completely broke right now is all the federal money that's poured in as part of the COVID relief programs, where they threw a billions of dollars at mass transit to try and float, keep it afloat. The problem is, is it, the ridership's not recovering, and that federal money is going to end soon. And that payroll tax that MX uses to massively subsidize its operational costs because it can get capital money you know, from the federal government now and then to buy an electric bus or to build a new extension of MX somewhere, but it, they don't get federal money to operate. Not a lot. Most of that comes from a payroll tax and, that, and the fare box. But the fare box is a smaller portion of that. But when that fare box revenue doesn't recover, guess what's going to probably go up? Your payroll taxes. Yeah, um, for emptier buses. Explain to me why we need moving ahead again. I'm lost here. Oh, my goodness. Wow. I burned about two-thirds of our show just talking about MX and transportation and, and cars and electric cars and stuff like that, and I haven't offered folks a chance to call in again. 646-721-9887. Don't forget to press 1. That lets us know you want to get in on the show. We'll talk about whatever you want to talk about, whether it's the recall, Clara Surrett, MX, moving ahead, electric vehicles, before we can move to some new topics, I want to talk a little bit about baseball stadiums, maybe the holiday farm fire a little bit, um, and, and we've got other stuff we can talk about. Again, 646-721-9887. Don't forget to press 1 because that lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know that you want to get in on the show rather than calling in to listen, which we had somebody listening for a while today. Um, so I want to get to, you know, one thing in particular. I want to talk a little bit about um, the Holiday Farm Fire. The Holiday Farm Fire happened during a once-in-100-year event, basically. Last time we saw a similar East Wind event in Oregon was in the 30s, and it generated the Tillamook burn. 
if people aren't aware, that whole Tillamook State Forest was once burnt to the ground during an east wind event like that, you know, where it only took one spark and, it, and basically the ocean put that fire out. It burned the Pacific Ocean. Nothing was going to stop it. The Holiday Farm Fire, very similar conditions. Kind of the difference of why there were so many fires that time was that we had a situation now where there's a lot more development. You know, think about the 30s. Not a lot of electricity out there. You know, the rural electrification was just happening in the 30s. To flash forward to 2020, and electricity is ubiquitous and everywhere. But at the same time, a lot of these co-ops that were set up under rural electrification are massively underfunded. And their infrastructure is aging, poorly maintained, and, and there's lots of reasons behind that. Part of it is that a lot of the boards of these co-ops are co-op members, and their friends and family and neighbors are all co-op members too. And raising rates to pay for infrastructure upkeep and renewal and replacement and improvement doesn't sell well. You know, they understand having to buy power off of BPA or whoever they're buying power from and paying for that, having the rates match what the power they're buying, but they really don't like paying for just simple things like pole replacements and, and everything else that goes into the maintenance of a, of a grid. So you have these, you know, 2020, we have these poorly operated, not so much poorly operated, poorly maintained. And not because the people working on them don't want them to be maintained, they just don't have the resources and the funding and the manpower. So don't blame, the, and, and, it's, and it's, it's sort of a vicious cycle thing of people wanting their electric rates to stay down. And, it, and it's happened in small water utilities, small sewer utilities, small cities with roads and stuff like that, where you know, it's really hard to make people understand what it really costs to maintain infrastructure and to get them to pay for it. So Holiday Farm Fire was part of that whole 100-year event, where there was a 100-year weather event, winds blew at least 20, if not 40 miles an hour, higher than what was even predicted for that night. Based on some of the tree damage that was done in some of the areas, they saw 70 to 100-mile-an-hour winds Hurricane first winds. That wasn't the prediction. 40 to 50 was the prediction. So once a 100-year event, infrastructure issues, multiple fires. Tragic event. People lost homes. There were some lives lost. Been a long, hard road recovering. Nowhere close to being recovered. Um, you know, you know, we, we only have like 70-some homes that have been completely rebuilt out of the 400 and some lost. So we're, we're really still struggling. Two years later, the anniversary is tomorrow. Then the news comes out that Lane County is going to be suing the electric companies for damages over this. What people won't understand about this, and I want to explain, and I can't talk about the suit that much because it's one of those things where when you're involved in legal things, you can't talk about it. I just want to talk about what generates these kind of lawsuits. The federal government, and for some good reasons, because in the past this has happened, FEMA has provided emergency funds for something and later on it was determined there was somebody responsible for that emergency. Think about things like BP's oil leak or some other huge catastrophe that federal government may have provided some funds. In order to make sure that the federal government's not going to get, you know, either double paying for something when somebody, you know, recovers money from a, a British petroleum or some other person, 
the Congress wrote a statute that says you must, as a recipient of emergency funds for FEMA for a disaster, attempt to recover from any culpable parties their responsibility and the cost of recovery for whatever event it was. Now, mind you, an earthquake, you wouldn't be able to, you know what, you never know, you might be able to sue the, the engineer for the building that fell down. But basically, Congress has made it so if you accept FEMA funds, you have to start suing people. Whether you think it's right or not, whether it sounds petty or not, we put in danger the taxpayers of Lane County to reimburse FEMA for any funding we've received for the Holiday Farm fire and recovery if we do not pursue legal action. And the two-year statute of limitations to file was coming up with this anniversary tomorrow. So the, the action's been taken. Um, and it's based on federal requirements. And that's all the further I'm going to talk about this. I just want people to understand that driving issue is, is this is a federal legal requirement for accepting federal emergency aid. Just wanted to have that out there because I didn't see that in any of the stories about us suing Wayne Electric and EWEB. That there is this Stafford Act and further U.S. Code that requires this sort of action. Or we have to hand FEMA back all the money we got. And by the way, you know who's going to have to make up all that money? Lane County taxpayers, and we've talked about how short we are on funds for public safety and stuff on past those no shows. So you can imagine where the cuts come. By the way, we've had another DA, assistant, you know, a deputy DA, um, decide to take another job other than at Lane County in the last couple of days. Provided notice, so eeks, but at least. We got a, 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 a newbie coming out of college that has taken the bar but hasn't gotten results yet being hired and, and we've got you know other hiring going on. Hopefully we'll we'll make back up the yeah, yeah. Yeah. Scary times as far as public safety goes. Um, but I just wanted to make sure I covered that before I ran out of time on the Bose Nose show. So folks might have a little bit of inkling of, of some of the decision making process around this. And that's all I'm going to say about it, because I can't talk much more than that, but I can point people to something called the Stafford Act. And if you want to know the exact U.S. code numbers, I could probably get that to you if you want to message me or something like that. If you really want to see what the federal government tells anyone that receives FEMA money, <laughs> they have to do. Or be at risk of reimbursing all the FEMA money. So just want to make sure folks understood that. Now I want to jump back to stadiums and stuff like that because we got it's on our agenda next week, but really it's just a first reading on our agenda next week um, to uh, you know um, actually it's a second reading uh, transient room tax yeah um, next week uh, for the stadium possibly. Now, mind you, they're not totally connected. I wanted to, to explain to folks, if we authorize, and it's not the same with collecting it, it's just moving ahead with authorizing a possible expansion of the transient roof tax by two, of an additional 2%. One, it's not actually the, um, it's, it's basically passing the law that allows us to do that. Then actually raising the tax would take another action. And then actually, you know, saying that that tax is specifically going to the stadium takes a different action. You know, so there's, 
multiple steps where we haven't, you know, what we're doing is not the end thing. So it doesn't necessarily mean that if we, we do the enabling legislation that, have, that allows us to raise the tax, that it's necessarily going to be raised for stadium. It could be raised for an indoor sports facility that would include possibly an indoor track. Or it could be for expanding the convention center in downtown Eugene, which is badly in need of a, of a grand ballroom of some kind to make it competitive with other small city convention centers you know, in our market. Um, you know, that, that's, it, all it does is give that 2% capability. Coming back later and doing other stuff, you know, that, that, that has to happen. So it's not the end of the conversation about the baseball stadium. Um, I am going to be looking very hard at, at opportunity costs if we decide to go with, with funding the stadium. You know, it's going to tie up a significant amount of transit room tax for a number of years, which means there will be other projects that may not get done. And would those have a higher cost-benefit ratio? Now, the unfortunate thing is I don't have a lot of data to judge that on. I've got some economic data for the baseball stadium that we had. We paid a third party to develop. I'm going to have a hard look at that and determine whether I trust that those projections. It's currently showing that this is actually going to be beneficial to the citizens of Lane County in the long run. But is there an opportunity cost in that? Is it going to put off our ability to build an indoor uh, track and indoor sports facility that will draw wintertime events versus an outdoor stadium that will mostly draw summertime? Now, mind you, there is a need for summertime event draws at the event center because the event center's indoor spaces get booked the entire winter. Our problem is we don't get a lot of summer revenue out of the event center because we don't really have good outdoor event facilities, and this would change that. Um, so it would be partially about making the, you know, the Lane Event Center a year-round viable, financially successful facility and not if it keeps running the way it is now, we're endangering that long-term effectiveness of the indoor wintertime usage of the LEC because it can't support itself completely. The buildings are, are kind of like the, the, the small electric costs. The buildings are deteriorating, and they're not generating enough revenue to make the infrastructure improvements needed to keep it up and, and competitive with other more modern facilities. Um, whether it's the Lynn County Fairgrounds facilities that might be competing with us. So um, I, I'll be looking very hard about that whole thing and, and also considering is the M's contribution of $10 million up front a, a fair cost sharing? And is it what, you know, what is it typical to other um, minor league agreements around stadium construction? Um, I'm always a little bit leery about um, municipalities and governments supporting sports facilities and, and even convention centers too heavily, at least with transient room taxes being paid for um, with supposedly the gain in, in bed stays that they might generate, but then there's some question about how much bed stays this facility will generate. Concert venue generates this fair amount, you know, between people that come in town for the concert, particularly, you know, depending on the show. Um, don't want to travel, you know, that, you know, will generally stay either the night after or night, night before night after sometimes of major concerts. Uh, an evening baseball game, a minor league baseball game, not so much can generate a lot of that kind of, you know, travel for, for the watch, so to speak. Um, it generates some, at least this opposing team and their, their uh, 
broadcasters and, and everybody else that comes with them, um, you know, take up some beds, but not a lot. Um, so it'll be, it'll be an interesting conversation. Um, I'll be willing to listen to both sides. I think some of the issues around, you know, lighting of the stadium, you know, modern lighting is so much more efficient and directional than, than what they used to light stadiums with. So I think that's not as big of an issue. Sound um, can be built, soundproofing and, and sound considerations can be built into the facility. Um, you know, one of the things we pushed hard in our, our negotiations with the EMS is that they are not going to be charging for parking. So there'd be no benefit to people to park in the neighborhoods. We want them to park on site. Um, and that free parking means why walk, why cross 13th Avenue, uh, you know, and, and, and other streets and walk a distance uh, when you can park right there on site, um, you know, for free. Um, so that's kind of one of the things that we're, we're trying to make sure we, we're sensitive to neighborhood issues with that. Generally, you know, baseball games and, and all ended at a pretty decent hour. Um, and, you know, we can be careful about um, putting limitations on um, what kind of events can be held there, shutoff times, uh, decibel levels, um, even uh, to a certain extent, you know, having some decency standards relative to, you know, not booking in somebody that's going to, you know, be shouting obscenities and, and over loud speakers or, you know, things like that. Um, you know, making sure we stay family friendly with, with events. Um, you know, no rag, no all night rays, that sort of thing. Yeah, <laughs> we can be careful about that. Um, and it can be a plus, I think, for the fairgrounds and the, and the community to have that there. Um, there really is no concert venue of that size seating anywhere around. Um, it would have more seating than the uh, Hayden Homes facility out there in Bend. Um, much more seating than Cuthbert. Cuthbert's uh, facility is aging out. Um, I've talked about that before. There's no dressing rooms at Cuthbert. <laughs> it's sometimes difficult to book acts there because they don't want to play it because it's just such, you know, uh, not a nice facility to play for them. Uh, this will be different, you know. Locker rooms. What can I say? You know, it'd be set up a lot better for that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, there's, um, you know, and, and it would bring a possibility for, you know, a lot of acts to come through this area um, that maybe wouldn't. So, you know, I'll be looking at all those positives. I'll be looking at the negatives. I'll be looking carefully at the financial projections. And, you know, one of the things I, I, I always stress, anytime you make a financial decision, there's an opportunity cost you always have to look at. What else could that money have been used for and would it have been a higher and better use of that money? It's one of the reasons why I don't like taxes and expanding taxes that much is more often than not, the hidden hand of the private sector in the capitalistic system is more efficient at using money than government is. So there's much less opportunity cost losses in leaving that money in the private sector than taking it into taxes and having government make those decisions because we're not always the best choice. We'll do things like spend it on MX lines and roundabouts. I'm trying to force you to make decisions about your lifestyle, like banning com internal combustion engines or banning your ability to use natural gas when you build a home. I see I've just about run the clock out here. And, uh, oh, I should, and light bulbs, of course, you know. I, I had to stock up on 100 watt light bulbs before they became illegal because I'm getting old, I'm half blind, and I find out I need more light. And boy, those, those 
little curly cue things might have said that they, they're imitation hundred watts. Nah. Now the newer LED stuff, they finally got it down somewhat to where they can actually get bright enough where I can read. But even then, that you got to put up with that quivering blue light. You know. Oh well. Enough said for uh, the Bose Nose Show for this week. We'll be back next week at the same time here on KRBN Internet News Talk Radio, coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira. Have a great week.